can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll have the text up on the screen. It's already up there. If you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to follow along. If you've got a Bible and you're not real familiar with where 1 Peter is, it's way towards the back. So start get hit Revelation and start working your way forward and you'll find your way to 1 Peter. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Now the reason we're taking a pause in our series on Luke is in part because we weren't sure what the weather would be like today. And so we wanted to make sure that we didn't continue forward in Luke if we had a really bad storm and there were only 10 people here. But it was also because this Friday we got to participate in the cross conference simulcast, Cross for the Nations, the theme of which was Undaunted. So we sat and we listened to incredible teaching on Friday night. And the purpose of that conference is to stir up an awareness, to stir up a heart for people to go and for people to be sent on missions specifically to unreached people groups. So people groups where less than 2% of that people group have access to an evangelical gospel. Less than 2% of those people have access to a church or a pastor or even another real Christian. So I wanted to stir up through this conference a heart for that. But you don't participate in missions at all, much less missions to unreached people groups without recognizing that there is risk involved. That's one of the things that John Piper and his first address of the evening pointed out to us. There is risk involved in taking the gospel to a far away people. And as I was sitting there as your pastor, I realized it's not just enough for those who are thinking of possibly doing missions or going to an unreached people group to assess their faith to encounter risk. We have to address how do you understand risk? How do you understand the place of suffering in the Christian life just as a member of the household of God. Because before anyone will ever get to the point of being willing to go and and do missionary work abroad or missionary work across the street, they have to be okay with risk. Before someone's parents are willing to get in faith behind behind the prospect of them, them going to a dangerous place like North Africa, those parents, right, have to understand the place of risk and the potential for suffering and where that fits in the Christian life. So we're going to look at 1 Peter this morning. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. 
Zach Smith was a young father and husband. He, in many ways, was living out your very typical American life. Whether he would have called it the American dream or not, I'm not sure. But it was a good, normal, comfortable American Christianity. And then Zach and his family got devastating news. He had stage 4 colon cancer. The doctors quickly moved to have surgery. They took out a foot and a half of his colon. They removed a lemon-sized tumor from his body. But the cancer spread. It spread to his spleen, and it spread to his liver. And so they put him into an aggressive treatment of chemo, trying to combat it. And in the midst of this, Zach confessed there was just confusion assaulting him. Why cancer? Why now as a young father? Had he sinned in some way? Why was this happening to him? Why was his, his nice, comfortable life being so horribly disrupted? But he confessed that by God's grace, those questions in the midst of this terrible diagnosis and the difficult surgery and just the horrors of chemo turned to hope to trusting in God's plan. He, he still admitted he didn't know why he had cancer, but he had growing faith through the testimony of God's word that God had a plan in his cancer. And in that, they got the good news that the cancer was in remission. And they celebrated. A month later, they got devastating news that the cancer appeared to be back. The chemo seemed to have been ineffective. And that the way in which the cancer had now spread made it so that surgery was no longer an option. His doctors told him, medically speaking, Zach, you and your family need to prepare. You will not see the end of this year. You won't live beyond this, this calendar. Matthew 7.11 became an anchor for Zach and his family. God gives good things to those who ask. And he said this in his testimony, and it's just profound as a man looks at a death sentence from cancer. And he said, I read that and I realized that God cannot, God cannot give me a bad gift. And through that lens, Zach said, this is a quote, I can say that this cancer is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I am a better husband and dad, a better friend, a better follower of Jesus. And through cancer, God has shown me amazing things about himself. I still have questions about cancer. I do not understand, but I know that God is in charge. I am praying that God would heal me that's my desire. He goes on to, to say, I want to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle. I want to grow old with my wife. Who doesn't want those things? Yet he realizes that he was probably celebrating his last Christmas when he wrote this testimony with his family. He says this in conclusion. This I do know. If God chooses to heal me, then God is God and God is good. And if God chooses not to heal me, 
and He allows me to die. God is still God, and God is still good. To God be the glory. Zach would die from colon cancer. But that testimony lives on, and it's a reminder to us. It highlights three themes that reverberate through our passage this morning. Suffering exists. Suffering is real. Real for the Christians in Egypt, 21 of whom were recently beheaded. Real for Christians in Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Missouri. It highlights that God is sovereign and that somewhere in the convergence of those two realities, the reality of suffering and the reality of God's sovereignty, hope can exist and should exist for a Christian. Hope that bears witness to the gospel in the way Zach and his life and his testimony and the good way in which he lived and died speaks to the truthfulness of the gospel. So how does the sovereignty of God stimulate hope amidst suffering? That's the question of the text today. How does the sovereignty of God stimulate hope that would allow us to go out and do bold things in the name of Christ, knowing that suffering will be involved? Well, first, it does us by reminding us that God is sovereign in our suffering. It reminds us that God is sovereign in our suffering. Peter, in this letter, won't let us forget this fundamental truth. God is sovereign. He's, he's in control. But he's saying that in order to encourage us to give us a means of having hope in our suffering. Even, as this text shows, in the event the suffering is unjust and undeserved. Unjust and undeserved, like getting colon cancer as a young father and not being able to walk your daughter down the aisle. That's unjust and undeserved. Unjust and undeserved, like being slandered for Christ's sake. Peter wants to show us, to show his readers, he must establish that there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. If we would call God sovereign, then we must recognize that sovereignty extends to both the good, I got a new job, I got a promotion, we just had a baby, and the bad. I've lost my job. We've lost the baby. And Peter does this by noting two aspects of God's sovereignty in our suffering. The first is God is a supreme comfort to us in the midst of trials. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is saying here, God is not merely aware of our suffering. This is sort of like the whole analogy with presidents. Like, is this president so disconnected he doesn't know how much a gallon of milk is? Right? Peter's saying more than that. It's not just that God is aware of how much a gallon of milk is. No, no, he's not just aware that suffering happens. He's inclined to us in our suffering. He's not detached. He's present with His people. That's what He means when He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's looking at you 
as Zach Smith suffered, as his family suffered, they didn't suffer alone. The sovereign God of the universe was looking at the Smith family with tender, compassionate eyes. It's to be, as 1 Peter 2.9 states, a people for His own possession. You are my people. I am aware of everything that happens to you. Now, if God is this supreme comfort, if He is our God and we are a people for His own possession, then we should realize, like the psalmist do on so many occasions, that there is place, there is opportunity. It is right to cry out and pray to God. That happens all the times in Scripture, right? All the times in the Psalms. It recognizes that God is the preeminent source of consolation and support in your life. That it's God and His comfort and His nearness that brings us joy. That brings us help. That brings us a refuge in times of difficulty and trouble. Peter is trying to stir up that kind of faith in the midst of these churches in this region that are suffering. He's trying to stir up that kind of faith in all the people who would one day read this inspired letter. So God is good and compassionate, but we said He's also sovereign. That's Peter's other point. God is in control. He's absolutely in control of all that's happening. So God's solace in suffering Thinking of it this way, his solace and suffering isn't meaningless because if God is just merely consoling us as we suffer, but is totally impotent to do anything about it, what does that really do for us? You know, God's power substantiates the legitimacy of that comfort. It's not just that he comforts us, it's that he can do something about it. Not just that he can do something about it, but that in the midst of the suffering, he is doing something about it. The image of God is a refuge and a strength. It fortifies the soul only because God's infinite power and attributes undergird that promise. What good does it do if a person says, my eyes are on you. I'm listening to your prayer. But they can't actually help. What does it do us any good if God says, I'm, I'm so sorry you're suffering. But I didn't know it was going to happen. I'm so sorry you're suffering, but there's nothing I can do about it. Verse 17 says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That's a stunning statement to biblically uninformed ears. To hear it's good, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If it would be God's will that you would suffer for doing good. That sounds wrong to people who don't understand and aren't immersed in the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of cultural Christianity in America does not understand that phrase. What do you mean if it should be God's will that I would suffer for doing good? 
People only suffer when they're doing bad things, when they're not believing enough, right? No. Not according to Peter, not according to the scriptures, not according to the New Testament, not according to the life of Christ, right? Peter's saying that God, God is the one who ultimately wills for unjust suffering to fall upon good people. God is the absolute sovereignty who ordains how the sparrows are fed, right? He's the one who ordains when the lilies fade and die. And what Peter makes astonishingly clear is that this also means suffering only occurs according to the unfathomable wisdom of God. And for some of you, I realize this is a totally new thing, and you're sitting just squirming in your seats like, I don't agree with that. I don't like that idea. Some of you are maybe sitting in your seats thinking, I've always believed that, and now I'm in the midst of suffering, and it's hard to believe what I've always believed as I suffer. Give you give you two biblical examples of this that show us that God is not capricious; He is not lacking in goodness, even though this sovereignty is true. They're both well known. The first is the story of Job, right? This wealthy man who honors God, and because he honors God, because he's blameless before the Lord, Satan seeks permission from the sovereign God of the universe. Satan comes and seeks permission from God to oppose Job and to bring massive suffering into his life. Remember how the suffering comes on Job? His wealth is crushed by forces of nature and by enemies. He goes from wealthy to a pauper. His children, his beloved children, are killed in a freak storm. And then his own body gets severely afflicted with painful diseases in a day when there's no modern medicine to help with these afflictions. So you have Satan, you have nature, you have enemies, you have his own body bringing unjust suffering on Job, a righteous, blameless man. And then to make matters worse, his own friend starts slandering his character. What you do? You deserve this, Job. There must be some sin in your life that explains why this has happened to you. Listen to Job's response. And then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground. And he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job understood God's sovereignty in the midst of his suffering. And he placed the ultimate responsibility meted out through various means. His enemy, Satan, natural disasters happening, the betrayal of his own body. He recognized the ultimate responsibility should be laid at the feet of God. And then as he laid that responsibility at the feet of God, he fell down before those feet and he worshipped that God. And he didn't sin in doing that. And then you think of Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his own jealous, slandering brothers. He's unjustly accused of, of sexual assault, right? Unjustly accused of sexual assault because he won't commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. 
And then he's, he's imprisoned for years. Those he helps in prison that get freed forget about him, and he spends even more years in jail. For most of his adult life, Joseph is separated from his family and father. He doesn't even know if they're alive. When his family is finally restored to him and reconciled to him, he's had this whole life of difficulty and hardship. And now the people that are all the way back at the beginning responsible for all the bad stuff that's happened to Joseph are standing before him. And he responds with this stunningly gracious statement that only makes sense in light of Joseph grasping the sovereignty of God and God's goodness and compassion in that sovereignty. As for you, my brothers, you sold me into slavery and caused all this tragedy. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, not turned it towards good, not made lemonade out of lemons. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive in the midst of this famine as they are today. That 400 years from now, as our descendants languish in slavery, God will be able to come and redeem them and deliver them as a foreshadowing of the way he will one day send his son to redeem and deliver all mankind, all those he will die for. Yes, you meant it for evil. And yes, God meant it for good. ISIS beheads 21 believers. You know the image. All the men dressed in black. All these Egyptian Christians dressed in orange jumpsuits meant to look like prisoners. Like criminals. And they talked about this at the cross conference. ISIS is flaunting. In their minds, the, the power of Muhammad, the power of Islam against the impotency of Christianity. The impotency of this Risen Christ. They meant it for evil. Piper shared a story of the testimony of one of the brothers of the Christians who went on Arab news television and said, We thank God that they kept the video going, that they kept the volume on, and that we could hear the testimony of those men dying well and calling out to Jesus as their time on this earth ended and they entered into glory. A tract was written within 36 hours by the Egyptian Bible Society, two rows by the sea, two rows, one of men dressed in black, one of men dressed in orange. Two million copies of the tract were made. It's the most published tract in the history of the Egyptian Bible Society. They meant it for evil. They meant it to show their power. They meant it to create fear. They meant it to drive people away from Christ and towards Islam. But God meant it for good. In the dying of 21 men, tragically martyred. Through the blood of those martyrs, the church is growing strong. Without exception, the testimony of Scripture is that God ordains all the events of history, suffering included. So now you listen to how Peter interprets this church, this truth for our encouragement. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Under the auspices of God's sovereignty, the curse of suffering now gets turned into a blessing. If 
you should suffer for righteousness sake. Maybe you'll be blessed. No, you will be blessed. A promise of scripture, a promise of the sovereign God of the universe to you, a righteous one covered in the blood of Jesus in the midst of your suffering. For God's elect exiles, his chosen people, there's no meaningless suffering. Distress now is being and will be transformed into blessing, both for our sanctification and for our eternal reward. You remove God's sovereignty and you can't talk about hope and suffering in the same breath. At least not in a biblically informed way. There's no promise that this suffering has any meaning. There's no security that God is directing it towards a good end. In short, you remove God's sovereignty and you've severed the link between your hope and suffering. You can't testify with Zach Smith that God gives good gifts and that cancer is one of those good gifts. But God is good. And God is sovereign. And God gives good gifts to His children. How else does the sovereignty of God stimulate hope amidst our suffering? By exchanging our fear. Fear is something that stands in direct opposition to hope in this life. It is not uncommon to be consumed by fear. A consuming fear that it strangles and, and snuffs out hope. Fear is the natural direction of our hearts when suffering arises. Unless you find some way to medicate yourself, suffering comes and you look to the bottom of a bottle. Suffering comes and you look to a needle. Suffering comes and you just start binge-watching on Netflix so you can just forget that suffering is happening in your life. Well, when suffering comes, fear is the natural thing that happens. Whether it's cancer or natural disasters or persecution, whether you're being slandered for being a follower of the Christ, whether it's miscarriage or job loss, betrayal by a trusted loved one or friend, when our lives or security are threatened, the knee-jerk reaction is to fear, to be anxious, right? But Peter shows us the implication of God's sovereignty in our suffering. Look at how he connects God's sovereign comfort in verse 12 with verse 13. Now, therefore, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayers. Now, therefore, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Because God is sovereign, who can do you any harm? What's the source of your fear? In verse 14, he's even more explicit. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. This isn't Peter being callous to a church that's really suffering. This could easily be Peter writing to the church in Egypt. You've just seen 21 of your own beheaded. This is godly Wise pastoral care. You've seen 21 of your own be beheaded. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. God's exhaustive control, His rule and authority and His compassion, His eyes being on His righteous people, crushes the fear of man. It extinguishes the fear of death. 
But it doesn't just eliminate fear. Peter says it exchanges it. It's not just that he puts off the fear and leaves you in this neutral state. Like so many of us walking through life. I'm not really afraid of things. I'm just kind of going through the motions. No, fear is exchanged and hope enters the picture. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The charge that Peter gives to us, that he gives to these churches that he's writing to, that he gives to the Christians in Egypt, is to exchange our fear of man and to place our hope in the fear that Christ is holy and the Supreme Lord. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's sinful to fear our enemies. It shows a lack of faith. But it is holy. It is wise. It is righteous to fear the holy God of Israel. Specifically to fear Jesus, to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given. We read about him in Hebrews 1 this morning. The one who governs all things by the word of his power. But how does exchanging sinful fear for a godly fear create hope? How, How does that happen? Most of us don't go through life giving enough attention the way it is to what it means to fear God, do we? I don't. But even when I do, I I don't often approach the topic and, and the idea of fearing God as a ground for my hope. But that's exactly what a proper fear of God is meant to do. In Isaiah 41, the fear of God, the fear of the sovereign one who who rules the universe, is connected with our hope. Who has stirred up from the east? Who has stirred up one from the east with whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot, this sovereign Lord. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen, and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my servant, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. You, my elect exiles, my chosen ones, a people precious for my own possession, as Peter would put it. You fear not. The coastlands are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble before me. But you, as my chosen elect exiles, as my precious ones, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. 
Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. For I, Yahweh, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh, the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. From the mouth of God himself, the one who who raises up Cyrus the Great, to crush mighty Babylon. The God who the coastlands tremble before. Fear this sovereign God and fear no others, but in fearing Him and in looking to the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, know that you have hope. Because in Him, the Holy One of Israel, in Christ, crucified and risen, you are now a possession of this powerful God. That's the intersection between God and His power and His sovereignty and our holy fear before Him and our unquenchable hope. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, bore the source of all Satan's accusations, the source of all of death's horrible sting. And when He suffered for our sins and died in our place, He transformed our fear of God's wrath into a hopeful fear that we are now found in Christ Jesus alone. And so in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Because you have been united with Him in His death and resurrection. And so we can cry out with David in Psalm 56, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? With Zach Smith, we can say, God is God, and God is good, regardless of circumstance. Glory be to God. No, Peter's not done. The sovereignty of God stimulates hope in the midst of our suffering, and it's meant to spread that hope to others. And it spreads that hope in the midst of our suffering by strengthening the defense of our hope. 1 Peter 3, 15-16 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our suffering is meant to have an effect upon us. It's meant to sanctify us in ways that wouldn't happen if we didn't suffer. But as people observe our suffering, it's meant to have an effect upon them as well. But there's this implicit sense in what's happening that as the effects of our suffering take place, there should be a visible testimony to the watching world, right? There should be an evident hope. It shines out in notable brilliance to a dark world that as much as it tries to numb itself is devoid of hope. The death of those 21 martyrs is sending shockwaves to the Muslim world. But I don't think it's exactly the shockwave that ISIS wanted. 
So Peter exhorts us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Does the brother of one of those martyred men expect that he's going to get up on Muslim news channel and bear witness for what has just happened to his brother, to a watching Muslim world? I don't think so. But in the midst of it, Strengthened by the Spirit, he's able to walk out, 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. He's able to give voice to the hope that is within them. Within 36 hours, they're able to publish this tract, 2 million copies of it flooding Egypt, because they know in the midst, the people in the Egyptian Bible Society are living in Egypt. They're living in North Africa. They are within the grasp of ISIS. This isn't Christians back in the States making a tract for them and sending it over to them, right? Now, this is the people within the grasp of the enemy whose lives themselves could be threatened who are writing this tract. An evangelical church in Egypt, days after, placed a banner up over their church testifying to the truth of the Messiah, testifying that they will love their enemies even in the midst of this. Flagrantly saying, we trust Jesus more than we fear your swords. Peter's describing Christian witness. We testify to the hope that we have in our sovereign, exalted Savior as we give voice. So I want to look as an application here at the very end. Ways that we do this. The distinguishing marks of the defense of our hope. The first is it's a prepared defense. Always be prepared. If you have hope in God, especially in times of suffering, be prepared to make it explicit. Be prepared to give the source of your hope. Whether it's Zach Smith and his circumstances, considering it a gift from God, or the brother of one of those 21 martyrs. It's not a call to be an expert. It's not a call to write a manifesto or a PhD thesis. It's a call to defend your hope, which I think is just saying you point to the hope that you have in a crucified and risen Savior. You walk faithfully as a slave of Christ. Here's the thing. What Peter is doing, and why I want us to consider this message on the heels of the cross conference, is he's calling us to prepare. To prepare especially for suffering. You go later in the chapter, the next chapter over, 1 Peter 4, he says this, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, don't be surprised. In other words, it's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. And don't be surprised when it happens. This is the normal experience of the Christian life. The question isn't if you're going to suffer, it's when. You want to go to the mission field? Prepare to suffer. You want to walk faithfully as a slave of Christ in a post-Christian culture? Prepare to suffer. You want to continue to breathe in a fallen world groaning for redemption? Prepare to suffer. The darkness hates the light. There will be people who rail against the message of your hope. And so we have to prepare to make a defense. Prepare to point them to the source of our hope, a crucified and risen Savior. If you're in the midst of your suffering and you point with hope there, you don't have to have fancy words. God is good. God is in control. Glory be to God in the midst of my cancer. 
That's not fancy, but it's true and it's powerful. Be considerate. Peter says our witness should be with gentleness and respect. It should be boldly humble, not arrogantly loud. The strength of our testimony doesn't come from the the volume of our voices. It doesn't come because we're screaming like the talking heads on the news, right? No, it, it doesn't come from that way. It doesn't come from hearts that idolize being right over the desire to be winsome. There's a difference between being unwavering in our presentation of the gospel and being insulting or nasty or self-righteous and trying to overpower someone or to out-argue them. Let people leave a conversation where they disagree with the content of your testimony, but even in their disagreeing, even in them being offended by the gospel you preach, let them leave with a sense, that was so offensive! And yet somehow I sense that that person sharing that offensive message actually loves me. Be accountable. Peter says we're to have a good conscience, a.k.a. there shouldn't be a disconnect between your lives and your message. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, so that when you're slandered, it's actually slander. It's not accurate. Kevin DeYoung, in in his little mini-message during the cross conference, he gave a a call to to the men and women there and just said, you want to go to the mission field? Be holy. You want to go to the mission field? Quit looking at pornography. Insert all sorts of besetting sins there. You want to have a substantial testimony about the hope that you have in Christ? Stop exploding in anger at your wife and kids. Stop racking up massive amounts of credit card debt, living beyond your means, and not giving you to support the mission and ministry of the church. But talk about how your hope is set in Jesus. Countless other examples. Be accountable. Be above reproach. Be beyond the reach of their slander. And finally, be fearless. It's imperative to remember the way Peter says our hope under God's sovereign rule and care should operate. Have no fear of them. This has massive implications for our witness, especially as American Christians. It's really easy in this country to live under the mantra that says, just keep your head down and mind your own business and you'll be fine. Right? For many of us, suffering for Christ only keeps up when we actually share our faith and defend our hope. The only way they're ever going to think I'm weird is when I don't just stop laughing at the dirty jokes. I actually use their dirty jokes as an avenue, an opportunity to share about Christ and why I don't find them funny. People slander us in an attempt to deflect the penetrating truth of the gospel from gnawing at their souls. But the power of Peter's call is that you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear from what they think about you. Nothing to fear from what they might say about you. Nothing to fear from how they might 
revile you or, or push you off into the corner to, to be by yourself as, as that weird follower of Jesus? Why can't you be one of those nice, normal followers of Jesus who just, you, you claim to follow Jesus, but we would know, know it because you actually never claim to follow him, right? You never actually talk about it. Just, just keep it private and, and away from us. Our witness is beyond the reach of men and women who can slander us. Our hope is beyond the assault of Satan and all his accusations. Because our life is no longer consumed by the fear of death or what man can do to us. We shouldn't look like Peter in the courtyard. He just promised he would never betray him, never abandon him. And now as he's watching in horror as Jesus is carried off and and beaten, and he sits in that courtyard and, hey, aren't you one of his men? We shouldn't be like Peter there. We should be like Peter at Pentecost. He's witnessed not just the beatings, but the crucifixion. The crucifixion and the resurrection. God's triumph over the grave. And that Peter is now standing before the same city that just crucified Jesus. And that Peter is boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Christ, proclaiming to that city, his blood's on your hands. It was ordained by God that you would put him to death and you did it. But in this Jesus, if you repent and believe, you can have eternal life. Paul and Silas rejoicing in a Roman jail after a crowd has slandered them so badly, they're beaten for it. They're beaten for it. A whole city is slandering them. They're sitting in this hard jail, beaten backs, resting against cold bricks. And what are they doing? They're rejoicing. To respond like this with fearless and hopeful witness, we must set apart Christ as Lord and trust His sovereign promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord, I pray that you would increase the boldness of our testimony at Providence. Lord God, that you would help us increase our faith in your sovereign goodness to us. Decrease our fear over what people can do and say, over what could be taken away from us, how our reputations might be damaged. Lord, help us to fear you and to hope in you. Lord God, prepare us for suffering. Build our faith that you will sustain us in suffering. And Lord God, I pray that for those who are suffering right now, suffering for whatever the reason, Lord, I pray even right now that they would sense the comfort of you the risen Lord turning your eyes to them Father let them sense through your spirit that you are walking with them in the midst of their suffering 
that you care, that you are compassionate, and that you mean it for their good and for your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus.